Good morning. Glad you're here on this Memorial Day weekend. I've got this flower right here in honor of Kyle and Shelby. They got married yesterday. As Tony Pearson said, they looked maddenly in love. I didn't use that in the service, and I'm glad I didn't. That's cheesy, right? But anyway, it was a wonderful time. It was beautiful, and they had a great time. And it was a weird way to end the week because we also lost two members this week, so we've had people that we've bid farewell to. We have people getting married. Uh, people, we just, life goes on, doesn't it, everywhere. It just happens everywhere, and I'm so grateful uh, that it ends on such a good note last night with a beautiful wedding and a good time uh, together. And, and I, I, I hope uh, that your Memorial Day weekend is a time that you can reflect on some things. I want to take a moment of silence. I want you to, I want you to think about this in the last year. The number of people among us, active members whom we've lost in the last few months, in the last year. Take some time just to think about them. We're going to have a prayer, and we're going to continue with our service. Let's think about our brothers that are gone and sisters. Father, I'm so grateful that everyone who's here is here. We're grateful that this family is intact, that we're healthy the way we are, that things are going well, and we're so grateful for the signs of life that are everywhere. Mindful of some of our family that's gone, traveling to different family members' homes, pray that you keep them safe, and help us always to reflect, Lord, that family is an important thing. Uh, the church is an important thing in our lives, something that we, we care about that matters, and we're grateful for it. We're mindful of those, Father, who've been in our number over previous years but are no longer with us. We're mindful of the fact that what we have and what is here is because of the efforts and the presence of those people. Father, help us to be people who honor your command in our lives to remember, to remember, to remember, and never to forget those people, to honor those who work hard among us in the Lord, even those who are no longer present. And may we reflect and realize just how precious they are, even now, still, in our memory. We're so grateful for this time, and pray that you help us to remember powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus loves me. How many of you aspire to be great in the kingdom of God? Yeah, I see, a, I see a hesitance. I see like, I don't know what the right answer here is. Do I really aspire to be great or not? I mean, how many of you, I mean, when you win your occupation, you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be a, a, a professor somewhere, you're going to be a, 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 in, in some field out there. How many of you thought, I just want to kind of be mediocre, I'll just, I'll just kind of... When I get married, I want to be, oh, an okay spouse. That's okay, just be okay. I'll be just normal, average. Most of us should, I think, at least in our minds, aspire to be great at whatever we do. I'm a person who doesn't want to be in everything that's out there, but the things I choose to be part of, I want to be good at. When I get on that baseball team, I, I'm not settling for hitting 200. That's not good enough for me. If it were, I'd be on the Cardinal team. <laughs> All right. it, it's just... 
I think most of us, I want to go to the top. I want to be the best of what I'm, who's the greatest? That's what, I want to know who is that and I want to strive for it. Every baseball player wants to be the MVP and on the team that wins the World Series. Every singer, every actor wants to be the one that goes to the award show and wins that thing and breaks out that speech that you prepared and let people know who you think and who you owe. We want to be the best of the best. But for some reason, a lot of us will settle for, I'll just, you know, just come to church and sit on the pew once in a while, and, and I'll just be good enough. That's good enough in the kingdom. Now, the interesting thing is we make the disciples to be bad guys in this passage, and it is a little bit eerie to ask a question this bluntly, but it's not a bad question at all. The disciples are talking about this. They're walking along. Jesus is doing his teaching like normal, but there's a lull. They have this walk a long time, and Jesus is a little bit ahead of them, and they're all back here talking about who. Who in the, who, who's the greatest among us? They're thinking, they're thinking this, this thing that Jesus, this kingdom Jesus is establishing is like a government. And so the best servants get the best spots with the most influence. And so they're discussing among themselves, who's the best? Peter obviously thinks he is, and so do most of the others. I mean, he's been given the keys. He's, uh, he's gotten that great moment up there with just three of them up there in the Mount of Transfiguration. Obviously, he's got the lead. He's the main nomination, but there are others vying for it too. And I cringe a little bit when Jesus stops and says, what are you guys talking about? And I think at this point, the disciples should kind of go, well, we were just talking about, you know, uh, what the, why? the weather looks great, doesn't it? It's a little embarrassing and shameful. It makes me blush to think that I would ever bring this up. Now, I might think about it in the sanctity of my mind, but I'd never bring it up. We were talking about who's the greatest. And they're expecting Jesus to give a name. They want him to open up the envelope and say, the winner is... And they're looking for a proper name. Who is greatest in the kingdom? Who is the picture of who we all aspire to be? Who has reached the level of excellence in the kingdom? We all want to know this. We want to know this in everything. we got Jordan representing Nike. We've got Oprah representing the great diet programs. we got whoever on the cover of Wheaties Box. We've got, we've got these people that we set up here to strive to be, put together a puzzle. I want to know what the cover looks like when I'm trying to be in golf. Who do I, who do I try to imitate their swing? Who's the greatest? We're looking for this in every area of life. Why not the kingdom? Why shouldn't we ask? Who's the greatest? Later on, James and John have a mom that asks Jesus, hey, can my boys be the greatest? Can you put them at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom? That's not a bad question. I hope every one of you aspires not to be just some normal, everyday, scratching the surface of belief believer. I hope you all aspire to be great in the kingdom of heaven, but you must know what it takes. And so Jesus, it should just be Jesus. Shouldn't it be enough to be Jesus? I mean, that seems like a stupid question to ask when he's right there with you, doesn't it? But anyway, they know he knows they need some kind of living example. So he looks around and he calls some little kid out of the crowd. What's the little kid doing there? There were kids following. There are families following. It may be an apostle's kid for all we know. And he says, hey, boy, come up here. And this boy, it says, it could be anywhere from, from, from like six months to like three or four years old. 
come over here, and he stands in the middle, and he sits them there, and for the next 14 verses, if you look through this passage, he says little ones over and over again. The first 14 verses are about little children or your common, everyday, in the world person who's in the kingdom. It's not just children, but it certainly is children. And he has this child stand there, and that child just stands there. And Jesus says, you want to know who's the greatest? Right there he is. And the disciples are like, what? And by the way, this isn't the last time they have this discussion. It's going to take several attempts to get this through their heads. And by the way, we still don't have this down. It's still a struggle for us. What is Jesus saying? This child right here is the greatest. You have to, and the word he uses here is, you guys have got to do a U-turn. You've got to rethink everything you've been taught in life. Listen, kids know from very little how to evaluate the value of other kids. We teach it in our schools, and they almost know it immediately. They can look at the clothes you wear and the way you walk and talk and who's your mom and who's your daddy. They know where you are in the pecking order of our culture, don't they? How soon is that? I ask elementary school teachers this all the time. They know this in second grade. We do too. When someone walks in this building, we can look at them in a few moments. We can evaluate just what their worldly value is most of the time. And a lot of times, the way we treat them is determined by that judgment. And when that happens... We are not being great in the kingdom of heaven. Because that's not how you treat people. Not in the kingdom. You've got to turn. You've got to turn and treat them like children. What? You've got to be like children and you've got to treat people like children. It's weird. It's like when you pick elders. This is still a battle. If we were to try to pick elders today, this still happens. We will go to the CEO rich guy who runs this big corporation and think, there's a good elder. That's not the standard God gives. And a lot of times it's wrong. Sometimes the uneducated wise farmer who works with his hands and those people is a far better choice. But it's a challenge to everything that we've been raised as Americans to think. And Jesus says it's kingdom, it's children, the people who can't give a dime, who have no credibility, and who can't use their influence to benefit you at all. Those are the people who are great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and the way you arrive at that is that you, the way you treat people. It's weird, at this sermon right now, about this time, we would start saying, what are the attributes about children that he's wanting us to aspire to? And that's not what Jesus does. I know Tia and Deborah could answer this. They went to an Alan Jackson concert. Any Alan Jackson fans in here? Good Christian people. There's this great song, a summertime song called the Summertime Blues. In the middle of this song, this boy, I don't know, probably preteen, early teen, he's going around trying to solve his summertime boredom blues, right? And he goes to a congressman, and he asks the congressman for help, and the congressman says, quote, sing this line if you can, I'd like to help you, son, but you're too young to vote. You know this song? You don't have money, you can't contribute to my campaign. You don't have a vote, you can't contribute to my election. I have no time for you, son. And sometimes the church is like this with people too. If you aren't somebody who can help us pay off our building debt soon, I just don't have a lot of time for you. 
And Jesus says that's not kingdom values. That's why you've got to turn. That's why it takes a drastic U-turn for us to be able to practice this. So, instead of saying, here are the attributes I want you to aspire to, he says, he goes on to describe, to be great, you've got to become like a child, and to become like a child, you have to treat fellow believers with humility. You have to act your way into childlikeness. You have got to demonstrate it with behaviors that are concrete. And the first one is this. If you properly humble yourself like children, you'll receive every single child as you would receive Christ. Every single one. Now, what's it mean to receive them? I want you to see it in verse 4. Whoever, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's how you receive people that determines whether you'll become childlike. How you treat them, how you welcome them when they come in your building or come into your presence. How do you treat people? And by the way, it's every single one of them. There is not an acceptable loss ratio here. There's not one. I want you to notice the one throughout this passage. It's everywhere. When you try to treat somebody right, the stress on the word one, perseveres verse 6, he says, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. If there's one child coming in this building, one person who doesn't have a lot of worldly value and, and, and significance to us, and we treat them with disrespect, disregard, neglect, or ignore them, even one, it is unacceptable because every single one has value. Verse 10 See that you do not despise one. Don't you dare with voice or with eyes show a disregard and neglect for even one. Verse 14. It's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that what? One should perish. Don't let a one get away without knowing that they're loved. Don't let a one get by because of your failure to receive them and welcome them and love them and embrace them. We're talking about children here, but we're also talking about people who don't have a lot of worldly value come in this building. Even one. Again, we're trained from very young to put people in their, their pecking order, in their hierarchy, the clues are everywhere. We're taught very intentionally. But we also have to very intentionally act against our gut. We have to practice great restraint. So that person comes in, and you, it looks so obvious that they don't have a lot. They don't have a lot of resources. They're not going to make a great member. Churches aren't going to fight over this person because they don't have a lot of resources to contribute to whatever plans we have for the future. So that it's easy to just kind of say, well, if you come, great. If you don't, great. We can't do that. We've got to work against every bit of that impulse and treat them like we would treat Christ. I remember the story. It's told just not long ago, even last week as we were reviewing our history. Randy Carlton, the Carltons were assigned when you were in the building down there to clean the building. I don't know if it was a week or a monthly assignment, but they were paired with the crafts. I love this story because it just makes me appreciate how ingrained we are in this. And so as they were cleaning the building, well, Randy went downstairs, I believe, to clean the bathrooms. And Jim Craft would not have it. Absolutely could not wrap his mind around a man who's a doctor using his hands to heal people, picking up a scrub brush and cleaning out a commode. He just, in his mind, you can't do that. And so he said, no, you don't need to, I need to do that. You need to go do something else. I don't know what you could do cleaning-wise that, that 
that is honorable for a doctor. But anyway, whatever his view was, you can't do this. Can I tell you something? This is true. When you come in this building, your doctorate means nothing. You're no better and no worse than anyone else. If we're picking up chairs from a fellowship meal, if you're a PhD or an MD, get your hands on a chair and put it up. You're no better than anybody else. I'm, not gonna, I'm still going to ask you about the rash on my elbow whenever I need to, but, but you're not. We don't use those judgments, and they have to be checked at the door. Now, I still know that you're a doctor. I still know Tom's a doctor. I know who the doctors are, and I know what you do for a living. And some of you, I know that you're worth a lot. But when you come into the kingdom of God, we treat each other like the same because we're receiving you like Christ, like everybody deserves to be treated. Don't call me doctor. Don't call people doctor. I mean, you can call them that all you want to. I still will. But that person who comes in off the street who can't put anything in the offering plate is going to be warmly received and welcomed here as if he could put a thousand bucks a week in that offering plate. That has to be the way it is because that's how you learn to be humble people. That's how we learn to be great in the kingdom. We all put on, I want to be great. You want to be great? Treat people like that. That's what Jesus is saying. And by the way, he doesn't want us to miss this. He says the opposite too. Verse 10, don't you despise one either. Don't you look at somebody across the foyer when they come in, and maybe you don't know them, but they look a little funny. They have that weird ring in their ear. Every time I see somebody in one of those weird things in their ear, I just cringe. How did you ever get one? How did you get your earlobe stretched like that? Anybody ever wonder that? How did you ever come up with the idea of putting a hole that big in that little thing? But anyway, if I walk across the foyer and I see somebody like that and I automatically make a judgment and I refuse to walk across the foyer and treat them like they're well-received here, how dare I say I want to be great in the kingdom of God? I can't do that. We can't mistreat people because I'm going to tell you, look at verse 10. It says there are angels around the throne of God that are two-faced. <laughs> they're looking at God. But the second face is looking back at children and people who don't have worldly value. And they're keeping their eye on those children and people who lack worldly value. And when somebody despises, when somebody shows disregard, when you refuse to talk to them, when you refuse to walk across the room to, to, to visit with them, when you refuse to give them honor anywhere, when you do something that despises them in your heart or in your eyes or in your hands, that angel takes note of it and looks through his other face to God and says, you know what they just did to this child you put in their midst? Do you know God sees everything you do? with those children? Do you know God sees everything you do with the least of these? You ever despise them? God knows immediately and he writes it down. In case you're wondering, this is a warning. God sees when we aren't receiving people. He sees when we aren't giving a welcoming hand to them. He sees when we treat them different because of some superficial standard that our world says is significant but God says don't matter nothing. God sees it. You better care about it. That's the warning. This is not a guardian angel text. It's worse than that. These angels are not around them on earth. These angels are in heaven, he says, verse 10. So I'm going to tell you this. If you want to 
have greatness in the kingdom, be like a child, you've got to receive people like this. The second thing is, if you want to be a person who's great in the kingdom of God and be pro- humble properly like children, you'll have a very, very serious, sensitive view of your sin. I want you to pick this up with me at verse 6. This is a scary thought. This text is creepy, and it's creepy on purpose. Verse 6. I just went back. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. How many, for how many of you is drowning one of the top five worst, most awful things to imagine in your head? Me too. It's better that you drown yourself than you influence the least of these to sin. You're better off drowning yourself than being the reason a young person accepts sin and embraces it in their lives. Let that sink in a second. Know what he's saying? Don't be casual or flippant with sin and say, it's no big deal if I sin. It's only affecting me. He goes on to talk about, you need to be so serious about this that you'll cut your arms off. He's already used this illustration once. By the way, this means preachers can use illustrations more than once. He's already used this in Matthew chapter 5, talking about adultery, about your eyes, plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hands, if for whatever reason you can't control yourself sexually. But here he says, no, this is not just sexual, this is anything. Anything you do that a young person or a person who's very moldable and shapeable in the kingdom of God sees you doing and is emboldened to do it themselves, you would rather, you would rather kill yourself than it caused somebody else to sin by your behavior and your teaching. So he says, I want you to limit yourself. I want you to amputate what's necessary. I want you to limit yourself in this life what you can do. I want you to restrict yourself of some freedoms, if that's what it takes, in order to live this life free from being the one to blame for the temptation that brings a young person down. Here in a minute, I'm going to introduce you to the interns. I'm going to scare the living daylights out of them about what we expect. I'm telling them well in advance so they can get nervous, scared, and start sweating. We are to eliminate as much as we can of sin in our life. This doesn't mean that we'll be sinless. It means when we are sinful, we will repent so that people know that we're aware this is not acceptable. We don't like it in ourselves. But when we teach, we need to be careful that we don't teach things that aren't true. If our teaching influences the least of these to practice something that's sin, it will come back to us. It is our responsibility. I know it. I bear this every Sunday. It scares the living daylights out of me, and it should. And when it doesn't, I'll quit. Same thing for our behavior. There's one last thing he wants to introduce to us. I'm keeping this as quick as I can. It's this. If we properly humble ourselves like children, we'll keep up with each other enough to know when others need help. There's another parable. This is, again, a parable that he tells a second time. Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who never went astray. Now you know this parable from Luke 15. 
And in that context, Jesus is answering a question. The Pharisees are saying, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And he tells this parable to say, this is why I eat with tax collectors and sinners, because I want to save them. But that's not the context in Matthew. But he tells the same story. He tells this, I'm sure Jesus told these dozens of times for different applications. But this application is revealed in verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If you are around the church and you notice this one person, we receive them and they're in here. These are children. These are also the least of these among us. These people are very impressionable. And so they'll become part of the church. And all of a sudden they start drifting off. And suddenly you don't see them here anymore. Oh, well, that's another one. Let them go. Do what they want. No! No, when you have a heart like God wants you to have and you're great in the kingdom of heaven, you care about the least of these enough to say, I'm at least going to give it an attempt. I'm not going to let them drift off on my watch and they're my responsibility in this church. I'm grateful for every young person who participates in the youth stuff. I also expect Michael and April to look after those who don't participate as much. They're important to Valley View too, aren't they? The ones who often get lost, they don't get the texts, they don't get the emails, and if they do, they don't have a lot of friends here, but they're still ours, they're still with us, they're still a least child here, and we still care about them, and we know about them drifting off. I don't know how to do this in a church as large as this one. I'm really confused. This has been plaguing to me since I got here. you got so many people, and so so many people could drift off, and I'm not noticed. I'm trying to take in, even as I'm standing up here, I'm trying to memorize who's here and who's not. It's a difficult thing, and I can't do it by myself, so I've got this. I've got every one of you uh, a picture. I, I may have it by permission. I may have got it illegally, but it's on a slideshow. Every one of you, and I go through it every single week, praying for you, but also thinking in my head, did I see them Sunday or not? Are they there? Have I seen them recently? If I haven't, it bothers me. And so I will text Terry, I'll text Randy, text somebody and say, did you see so-and-so? Did I just miss them? Sometimes I'll say, yeah, you missed them. They were there. Sometimes I'll say, no, I didn't see them either. Then I'll send you a text. You may have still been here. Listen, if I text you and say, I didn't see you Sunday. I'm just letting you know I missed you and you were here. Do not get offended at me. You were probably behind somebody's big head and I just didn't see you. Don't get offended. I just didn't see you, but I just want you to know, because I didn't see you, I want to check on you. And I don't do this perfectly, but I'm going to try it, because I take this seriously, y'all. I take it seriously, we look after each other. And if somebody's drifting off, before they get too far, I want to at least make a rescue attempt. That's what God's called us to. And you can't do that for everyone. I don't expect you all to do that, but you know what? You've got people who sit in the pew in front of you, and pew or two behind you. You kind of know the people, because basically, we all on assigned seating, right? Everybody sits the same place every time, and when you move, it throws me completely off. Not just you. Are we responsible for our brothers and sisters? Yes, we are. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you will look around you and say, who's missing today? I'm just going to text them and let them know I noticed. That's all you have to do. Don't ask for justification and, and don't be accusatorial or whatever. Like, Just let them know you knew. That's how you become great in the kingdom of heaven. Luke, where are you? Stand up. And Shelby, where are you? She's at the beach. 
sermon illustration. Don't be like Shelby. <laughs> this is Luke. Luke, where are you from? Decatur, Alabama. He is here working with our young people for the summer. It's going to be great. They're going to have fun. But I want to tell you something. This is not just fun. This church takes this very seriously. You hearing me? These are young, impressionable people who are important to us. Don't you sin in a way that encourages or emboldens them to sin. You got that? All right. And if you ever do, you need to repent and confess before them. Let them know this is not proper. You got that? And if one of them is just drifting off for some reason, you need to, with Michael and with April, go see what's up. Got it? We're glad you're here. Okay, you can be seated. <laughs> We're never going to get another intern again. <laughs> I want you to notice something else, though, and this is covering these guys. Look at verse 13. If he finds that sheep, he rejoices over it. If you are a person who chooses to turn your back on the kingdom and you just don't want any part of it anymore and you leave, I think we owe it to you to come after you. But if you make it very clear that you have no intention and you've done this by intentional decision to turn your back on it, that's the end. We weep over that, but we will honor your free will. We are not responsible for those who choose no longer to serve God. And we are not going to feel guilty about that. We are going to honor your choice. But we will weep. Because like God, we don't want a single one to perish. The question that started this passage is, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They were expecting all sorts of answers, mostly one of them. And Jesus does something other than answer the question, he doesn't say who's the greatest in. He says if you don't become like children, you're not even in the kingdom. You can't even enter the kingdom without becoming like a child. You get that? You see that in verse 2? Calling a child to him, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter. It's not about greatness. You can't even be in the kingdom without being like a child. Why? Because you bring nothing. You are bankrupt. You have no capital. You have no credibility. And the only way you can get in the kingdom of God is to come before God and say, I got nothing. I've got nothing but sin in my hands. I've got nothing but blame all over me. And all I can do is reach up to you, God, and say, I need your strength and, and your truth and your son. And because it's a beautiful thing, by sustaining that same childlike spirit after you become a Christian, you rise in the ranks and become great in the kingdom of God. This morning, you might, be in the, you might be in the kingdom of God. You've responded to God. You've been immersed in the waters of baptism after you repented. And you are in the kingdom of God. Keep striving to be like a child in your faith. But some of you are not. Some of you need to make that choice. All it takes is admitting you are a child. You have nothing to contribute. You have nothing to bring. Throw yourself upon the grace of God and trust the blood of Jesus to wash away your sin. That's the only chance any of us have. And it stays the only chance we have to the day we die. If you need to respond this morning, the invitation is open. We urge you to respond if you've not already. And if you have, keep responding with childlike faith as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.